Good morning, friends. In 1989, uh, a movie came out that was pretty popular called The Field of Dreams, starring Kevin Costner. For, unfortunately, many of you weren't born at that point, but, um, and maybe you've gone back and watched it. It's, it's, a, it's an entertaining story about a farmer who's trying to save his farm. It's not producing well, and so he, uh, he has this dream or these visions or voices in his head saying, build it and they will come, right? Those of you who remember the story remember that. When he finally gets around to building this baseball field in his cornfield, he tears down a bunch of corn and builds this baseball field, uh, ghosts from baseball players pass come out of the cornfield and start to play baseball and he gets to watch and even participate. Um, and so not only did his farm get saved because they came out of the woodwork, out of the, the corn work actually to, to play baseball, thousands upon thousands of people came to watch these baseball players of the past play and they paid to do so and so his farm was saved. It's a great story. Uh, it's not true, by the way. Um, what we're going to unpack this morning uh, has similarities to that 1989 movie. Uh, these last two parables in particular, starting in verse 26 through 34 in Mark chapter 4, uh, Jesus describes something very similar, except we would say it like this, plant the seed and it will grow. In the same way that Costner thought that if I just build this baseball field, these baseball players of the past will come and people will come and watch them play, Jesus is saying, just plant the seed and it will grow. Today my goal is to persuade you to simply plant the seed of the gospel in and around your life and watch and wait and trust God that it will in fact grow. You just plant and let God take care of the rest is what I want you to hear today. Mark's objective in, in writing this book, this gospel of Mark, was to persuade his readers that Jesus is the solution to chaos and that he's the only solution to chaos. Uh, there is no human solution. In fact, sinful humans are the problem. When there is real chaos or real crisis, Jesus is the only real solution. Mark is suggesting. Now, the great cause of chaos in our world, of course, is sin, and Jesus came to deal with the world's sinful chaos. This is the trajectory of the book of Mark. Mark opens the book by introducing us to Jesus and giving us evidence of his true identity. One of the things that Mark tells us about, besides his ability to, to heal really sick people, is that he was a powerful preacher. Thousands and thousands of people flocked to hear him teach and preach. And here in Mark 4, we have evidence of that. We have a lot of people standing around listening to Jesus preach and teach about the gospel of the kingdom. This was what his sermons were about, the gospel, the kingdom of God. But it isn't here until Mark 4 that we actually get to hear the teaching of Jesus. And what you just heard read... Mark 4, 1 through 34 is a record of Jesus' teaching. 
He tells us four stories here. You just heard four stories read, and they're all related. They, they are all related to how people, number one, enter the kingdom, number two, how they bear fruit within that kingdom, and number three, the attitudes they have once they've entered the kingdom. So these four stories have these basic elements. How people enter the kingdom, the fruit they bear while they're in the kingdom, and the attitudes they have once they've entered the kingdom. So the first parable, the parable of soils that we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus said that there are four kinds of soils representing four kinds of responses to the gospel. Do you remember? There's, there's the hard soil that doesn't receive the gospel, doesn't receive the seeds very well at all. Uh, they reject it, in fact. And then there's, secondly, the rocky soil that seems to receive it, seems to be joyful in hearing the gospel, but when hard times come, there were, their roots weren't very deep, and so the seed dies out, and there's really no harvest. And then thirdly, Jesus talks about the thorny soil that, that is planted, but when it grows, thorns and weeds grow up with it and choke that out. That's an illustration of the, the cares of life, the concerns that we have for material things come in and choke out our interest in the things of God, and pretty soon uh, we're not interested in the things of God. That's the third soil. But then finally, he ends his first parable here in Mark 4 about the good soil. Good soil that actually sprouts seed, that actually grows deep roots and produces 30, 60, and 100 fold of fruit. A great harvest, in fact, if the seed will just take root. In the second parable, starting in verse 21, the parable of the lamp, Jesus tells us what spiritual fruit will look like what this 30, 60, 100-fold fruit will look like. The first fruit, Jesus said, what we will see is shining the light of the gospel in our lives to those around us, close to us and in our neighborhood. Um, Jesus said, in fact, that lamps are meant to shine in the darkness, not to be put under a basket. So that's the first fruit. That if, if you have a belief that the seed of the gospel has taken root in your life, Jesus says what you will see is what? Your interest in shining that light, your, your desire to let people around you that you love, care about, live with, know about this light of Jesus Christ's gospel. The second fruit that we see in this second parable uh, from that seed that falls on good soil is believing and working towards the rewards that God promises to those who will simply plant the seed, spread the seed. So if, if you're good soil, you'll be interested in spreading the seed of the gospel, and you'll be interested in pursuing the rewards that Jesus promises those who do. That's the second parable. Now we come to verse 26 through 34, and we see his final two parables, parables number three and parable number four, which describe the attitudes of those who have good soil and are bearing fruit. So parable number three, verses 26 through 29, reveals the first attitude. And of course, we learn these things, we're interested in these things because uh, we're interested in seeing what the gospel has had an effect on us. How, how has the gospel really impacted me? Has it impacted me? And so this is a, a personal interest that we must have here. And the first attitude that we see revealed in parable number three is dependent waiting. Dependent waiting. Let me read for you the parable again. It's very short. 
Verse 26, and Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain of ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle because the harvest has come. This is describing an attitude that you must have, a, an attitude of dependent waiting on the harvest. All right, so most parables, as you probably already know, are intended to have one objective, uh, one point. Usually, if you try to pull out more than one point out of one of Jesus' parables, you get all combobulated and mixed up and you don't understand what he's saying. So generally speaking, parables, Jesus' parables at least, have one point. Find that point and you've got Jesus' point, all right? That's just a little lesson in Bible study. But this particular parable is an exception. And let me tell you why it's an exception. We can pull multiple points from this parable because it's a unique parable. In fact, it's the only place in the Gospels, all four Gospels, where this parable is recorded. This has a unique message in this. We, we ought to pay particularly close attention to this parable because it's only recorded here in all four Gospels. So there's obviously something notable about what Jesus is saying. In fact, there are three things that are notable in what Jesus is saying in this parable. Let me, let me share them with you. First of all, I want you to look at verse 28. And what we want to see here is that simp simply this. God is the one who produces. God produces. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full ear, full grain, rather. So even though we hear the gospel, even though we embrace the gospel, even though we spread the seed of the gospel to our neighbors and friends and children, we remain dependent on God for growth. Not only in the lives of our friends, loved ones, and neighbors, but in our own lives. We're dependent on God for growth of this gospel seed. This is what verse 28 says. As Christians concerned with our children, listen, we have a lot of Christians in this room with children, and we're all concerned for them. We're all, we all have friends who don't know Christ, whom we're concerned for, neighbors in the same spiritual condition. The first thing this parable teaches us is that we cannot make anybody embrace the gospel. As much as we think we can. We cannot make anybody embrace Jesus and then make anybody grow. Why? Because God produces God does the work. Regeneration is what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and renews your heart and makes you interested in the things of God. It's called regeneration in the Bible. And that's something that the Holy Spirit does. Not something you do for your children, not something you do for your neighbors. It's not something that your parents did for you. The Holy Spirit alone is the one who regenerates your soul, your heart. Listen to Titus 3.5. This was on the overhead before the service started. He saved us. Who saved us? God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not by some fantastic thing that we've done. But according to his mercy. By the washing and regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, you regenerated. And then when Jesus, remember that famous conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3? He said the same thing to Nicodemus. 
Listen to what Jesus says to Nicodemus. These are his words. Quote, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You come to Christ, guess what? It is of God's will that it happens. God's will alone. God is the only one responsible for the germination and growth of the seed of the gospel, the seed of the word of God, in your life or anybody else's life. God produces. I think this is a powerful illustration, and Jesus uses this illustration of growing seed to show that God is behind the growth of the kingdom of God and the people of God. This is why we pray that God would do his work in our children, that God would do his work in each other, that God would do his work in me, because he produces alone. He, he is the one who causes us to grow spiritually. Without God's particular involvement, we don't grow. Our job is simply to share the word with people, like we mentioned a few weeks ago, go pick up a booklet of the Gospel of John and, and just give that to them, hand that out, and then pray like mad that God will do his work that only he can do. Stand back and let it work. In the same way, if I want to grow, if you want to grow spiritually, what's the key element? The Word of God, right? You have to sit under the preaching of God's Word. You don't want my stories. <laughs> you don't want my opinions about the matters going on in your life at all. What you want is for me to open the Scriptures and say, listen and obey. That's what you want and need. God that's the only way God works in your life. You must get the word of God flowing over your whole soul. So, are you a growing Christian? Can you see this, this supernatural work of God taking place in your life as you faithfully walk with him? Can you look back over the past weeks, months, and years of your life and see evidence that God has done his work in you? If so, it's because you're saturated with the word of God. If not, it's because you're not saturated with the word of God. It's pretty simple. Listen to how James describes this. James 1.21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, the seed of the gospel, the seed of God's word, which is able to save your souls. You want to be saved? You want to grow? The word must be primary in your life. Now this is what Jesus says on the same subject. Praying to his heavenly father, right before he went to the cross, John 17, 17, sanctify them or make them new, help them grow in the truth. Now, what's it, how's it, he end that prayer? Your word is truth. You want to be sanctified? You want to grow and become like Jesus? You have to be washed with the word. You have to be saturated with God's word. We, we simply, friends, spread the seed. God causes the harvest. This is what Jesus is saying in this third parable. Listen to what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It's only God. 
So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. And we thought we were so great, right? Because we planted or watered. No. But only God gives the growth. This is the main focus of the third parable. Jesus wants us to think about how the seed grows. It happens naturally. Without the assistance of the farmer, he just got to stick in the ground and walk away. God automatically causes growth. Now, I want you to look closely at verse 28 in your Bibles. Maybe you have a pen in hand so you can highlight something. The word automatic is actually in the original language. It's the words in verse 28, by itself. That's actually one Greek word, and it's automate. Automatic. And guess where it finds itself in the sentence? Remember I talked to you about how the Greek writers would highlight or emphasize a word that they wanted people to understand? They would move it to the front of the sentence. Guess where this word is? The very first word in the sentence. <laughs> Automatically, God causes growth. Automatic. It's of him. Pay attention, Jesus is saying. God is behind spiritual growth. <laughs> so, this clearly communicates that the ultimate success of the kingdom of God does not depend on you and me. Receiving the gospel message, embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior, following him for the rest of your life faithfully are all products of God alone. We simply sow the seed of God's word and trust him to cause it to grow. Dependent waiting. Dependent waiting. Here we also notice, under God's produce, that spiritual growth, any, any we see, is, is a gradual thing. Did you see that? First the blade, verse 28, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. It's a gradual thing. It isn't a, a sudden and quick thing. It, it takes time. To our frustration, it takes time. Aren't you tired of never seeing any progress in your faith? It seems, right? But Jesus here in his parable says it takes time. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain. We can become impatient, at least I know I have, become impatient with my own spiritual growth. I've become impatient with the growth of people around me. You know, I, I do that. We, we wonder why we can't conquer a particular sin. We complain that we don't understand more of the Bible. But Jesus is saying that the work of God in the lives of his people takes time. It takes time. So don't be impatient. Let the work of God progress on God's time, one blade at a time, is what Jesus said here. And to help you with your impatience, if you're like me, is to look for the small blade. Where do you see another blade in your life popping up? Or in the lives of your children, or in the lives of your neighbors? Where do you see that blade? What evidence do you see of grace growing? When you see it, rejoice. It's a blade, which means what? God is there and at work. <laughs> and whatever he begins, what do we learn in Philippians 1.6? He completes. Do you see blades in your life? Do you see blades in your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors? He who began a good work will Completed. Philippians 1 6. Dependent waiting. 
Every one of us begins here, by the way. I've recently spoken to new believers and, and they're kind of embarrassed and ashamed that they don't know anything about the Bible. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Guess how you were born into the human race? You're not born as a 30-year-old. That would be difficult for some people, particularly the mom. Guess how you're born into the family of God? In the exact same way, as an infant. You come in not knowing a whole lot, not understanding a whole lot. You come in as an infant. And as infants, we're weak, we're unimpressive, we're vulnerable, which requires us to dependently wait on God to do his work. What else do we see here in this parable? Next, we see rest. God produces, we rest. The point here is very simple. Only God causes people to come to faith. Only God causes spiritual growth. And of course, this is a great relief to us, right? Who love people in our own homes, who love our neighbors, who, who we hope and pray that they'll come to faith and grow in faith. The fact that God is the one who produces allows us to rest. And it says here that it allows us to sleep. Verse 27, you can actually go to sleep at night. Because God is the one who's behind the spiritual life of your children, the spiritual life of your neighbors and friends. You can go to sleep. Can you imagine if it were up to you? You wouldn't be sleeping. <laughs> My word. Um, Knowing that the conversion of our children, friends, and neighbors is not dependent on my clear enough, persuasive enough presentation of the gospel is a great relief. <laughs> I had a couple once tell me that if the doctrine of election were true, they didn't want to have any kids. This reveals a critical misunderstanding of the doctrine of depravity. In our sinful selves, none of us will ever come to Christ unless he pulls us to himself. The only hope for your children, the only hope for your neighbors, is the doctrine of election. That's the only way they'll come to faith. Because they are totally, we, you, me, all of us are totally depraved. We don't come to God on our own. No one seeks God. No one, Paul said in Romans, seeks God. And yet here we are believing in Christ. <laughs> How'd that happen? It's called the doctrine of election. God saves your soul in spite of your resistance. That's what Jesus said in John 644. No one comes to me unless the Father draws him. And that word draws is mild. In reality, the word that John used was drags. No one comes to me unless the Father drags him. In other words, none of us are willing. <laughs> it requires the work of God, the grace of God, to get us over the line. This is why the farmer in verse 27 can sleep. He is 100% dependent on the mercy and grace of God. Romans 9.16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. Can it get any more clear? How about this? Maybe this is more clear. Um, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who? Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. Listen, they were born into the family of God, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, it's obvious what Jesus is saying in his parable. God produces, we rest. This is so important to keep in mind. Only God can change the mind of the human heart. Only he can cause a sinner to change direction, repent of their sin, and turn to Christ for his grace and mercy. And when we do see growth, we do see fruit, guess who gets the glory? Not you or me, because we had nothing to do with it. God gets the glory, and which is where it belongs. No one will steal my glory, God says, numerous times in Scripture, so that no one can boast. This first parable ends with the harvest. God produces, we rest, and lo and behold, we harvest. You see this? But when the grain is ripe at once, he, who's he? The farmer puts in the sickle because harvest has come. Even though he had nothing to do with it, he gets to harvest. You and me get to harvest. That's a wonderful and unexpected bonus from Jesus, isn't it? Even though we cannot cause the seed to take root and grow, we still get the joy, the privilege, and the benefit of the harvest. The harvest is one of the greatest joys and privileges in the Christian life. To witness someone come to faith after sowing the seed of the gospel, all of a sudden they respond beyond this miraculous response to the gospel message is this blessing of spiritual growth that we get to witness, of Christian fellowship that we get to enjoy from now throughout eternity. Because of God's goodness, we get to enjoy the harvest. The already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, which Pastor Rick mentioned last week is seen in this parable very clearly. The already not yet description of the kingdom of God is a helpful and standard way that Bible teachers and commentators over the years have discussed the way the kingdom of God is revealed to us in scripture. In verse 29, when Jesus said, when the grain is ripe is the not yet. One day it's gonna ripen and then you'll harvest. Not yet, but one day it will ripen that's the not yet side of the equation. When he said this, when Jesus said these words here in Mark 4, he had not yet suffered in Jerusalem. He had not yet drank of the cup, risen from the dead, or his disciples, his disciples persecuted for his name's sake. The gospel hadn't gone into all the world. Those were things yet to come. That was the, it wasn't ripe yet. It was not yet. But then the ones who received this gospel here later in the first century, Mark's readers, the church in Rome, would have seen a lot of these things take place. They would have seen Jesus crucified, raised from the dead, persecution of the church. They were experiencing it at the moment. They probably would have thought, oh, the harvest is here. The final harvest. We're about there in the full revealed kingdom of God. So in our lives, 
we should be able to look over the past few years and, and see the already. What has God already produced in your life? Can you see it? If you look back, can you see his work, evidence of fruit, grace that comes from God? This is the work of God in you, if you can see that. We can also see the harvest of those around us. We can see our children grow in understanding and embrace Jesus in his gospel. What a joy that is. When we share Christ, which is planting the seeds of the gospel, with those in our lives, we have the privilege of seeing harvest from time to time. And this all requires an attitude of dependent waiting. Waiting on God. Because it's in his time that these things will happen. In the second parable, from verses 30 to 34, we see confident trusting. This is the second attitude that we must have, that we must display, confident trusting. Let me read the, the parable to you. And he said, what, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which, is, which when it is sown on the ground, is the smallest of the seeds of the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than the garden of plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. This is the parable of the mustard seed, very famous parable contained in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here in this fourth parable in Mark 4, we see some contrast, don't we? The contrast between beginning things, which are small and insignificant, to the end things, which are big and dramatic. There's the contrast there, small, big, nothing, a lot. It starts almost imperceptibly, this mustard seed, this mustard plant, can't even hardly see the seed, but it ends up being spectacular. Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God here. He's speaking about the effect of the gospel in the lives of the people with good soil, and its ultimate result in the grand picture of God's king, coming, coming kingdom in fruition, guess how it happens? One person at a time. That's how it happens. How is this grand uh, mustard plant produced? One person at a time. How is the kingdom of God, how is it all going to come to fruition? One person at a time. You, your neighbor, your daughter, her friend, her parents, etc., etc., etc. One person at a time. The common accusation against people who embrace the doctrines of grace is that there is no motivation for evangelism, right? Have you heard that? If you embrace the doctrine of election, why evangelize? God's going to get them there anyways without your help, right? Some people think that. Maybe you do. If God chooses people who will be saved and only God can convert someone and God can cause them to grow, then why evangelize? Why spread the seed of the gospel if only God can make it happen? Seems like a logical question. Well, Jesus is saying in this final farming parable that the reason we keep spreading the seed of the gospel, the reason we keep sharing Jesus with people is, listen, because God guarantees its growth. God uses means. God uses you to speak to your neighbor. That's why we have the commands to share the gospel, to go into all the world, starting with your neighbor, and 
plant the seed of the gospel. If you'll do that, the point here is that God uses means, he guarantees the result. Our evangelistic efforts, listen friends, in this parable are guaranteed to work. It doesn't require a perfect gospel delivery. Some of you are afraid to share the gospel because you think you might mess it up. Well, guess what? God doesn't require perfection in sharing the gospel. He requires faithfulness in sharing the gospel. It, it just is, is simple that to spread the gospel faithfully to those in our lives. God always uses us to do these things. The point of this final short parable of the mustard plant is that God will make it grow. As humans, we have no power whatsoever to pull this off, but God certainly does. He's going to accomplish his purposes. He will save and transform everyone that he intends to, which means he guarantees his outcome, the result of planting. And so we're part of a mission that can't fail. <laughs> Don't you wish your job was like that? Or your DYI project at home? A project that can't fail. That's what this is. Every person that God ordains to be saved will be saved, and he uses his people to do it. Listen to Matthew 16, 18. After Peter just declared Jesus to be the Christ, that was his belief, Jesus says this back, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus promised that his church will grow. How? One person at a time. That's how. He's guaranteeing that our efforts for the kingdom will produce and produce abundantly a large plant. You may be uncertain whether or not your spreading of the gospel seed will have any impact. Um, I'm not certain my invitations to church have ever been accepted. I'm not sure anybody has ever responded to me passing out this pamphlet or this copy of the gospel of John. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard personally of people who have come to faith by simply reading the scripture. That they didn't know where it came from. From Gideon Bibles in motels to finding a copy of the Gospel of John on a park bench. <laughs> All we have to do is open our mouths, be faithful, put out the, the, the gospel seed. The mustard seed, of course, is tiny, almost imperceptible. One would hardly, hardly expect much to come from such a modest beginning, but amazingly it grows and grows and turns into a very large bush, even a tree. Some say that, that these uh, mustard tr uh, bush get 15 feet tall, 17 feet tall, from a seed that's almost invisible. For you skeptics out there who know that the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed, any of you out there? Yeah? Okay. Of course, there is a smaller seed on the planet, right? You know what it is? The orchid seed is smaller than the mustard seed. But guess what? There's no orchids in Israel. <laughs> the smallest seed that these people all knew about was the mustard seed. How do you like that? All right, so this is what the people were familiar with. It, it, it is something that Jesus used to get them to understand the principle of the parable, of his teaching. 
His disciples who heard the parable would have connected the size of their ministry, looking around saying it's going to be so huge, it's going to bless the nations and so forth and so on. Jesus, there's 11 of us. <laughs> it's like Abraham claiming to be the father of a great nation. Sarah goes, hello. <laughs> we don't have anything yet. Jesus is talking in the same language. Things are going to get massive. Disciples are looking at each other, fishermen going, <laughs> when's the varsity showing up? This is the JV, obviously. Well, Jesus is simply saying, trust me, God's going to cause it to grow. Each of these disciples, each of these men at this time were uncertain, untrained, fearful about the future. They had no reason to believe that their lives would ever amount to anything. They were nobodies. Fishermen from Galilee. Even after the resurrection and the ascension, there were only about 120 believers in Jerusalem. This small group would become a massive wave of God's kingdom sweeping the planet. The book of Acts is a record of that. One person at a time, the explosion of the kingdom of God, turning into a very large plant. Hundreds of millions covering Asia, Africa, Europe, and finally the Americas. We can have complete confidence even though we are weak, sinful, fearful, hesitant, just like those first disciples, that we are bring, being used by God to accomplish his purposes in his kingdom. It's about his ultimate and complete reign over all creation. He's using you to get it done. Me, us, to get it done. The climax of, of his kingdom, Jesus says here, is inevitable. We are the participants who God is using to bring it all about. Your, your small act of kindness, your words of encouragement, your invitation to church, your handing out of the gospel of John and sharing the message of Jesus is what God uses to grow this massive plant called the kingdom of God. So are you letting the light of Jesus shine? Are you spreading the seeds of the gospel? in your life. How do we do this? Well, be involved in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. That's how. Join sports teams or clubs so that you can share Jesus. Instead of seeking out Christian mechanics, barbers, and bankers, intentionally seek out those who don't know Jesus. If my barber comes to faith, I leave and get a different barber. You know, I know some of you ladies change because they cut a third of an inch more than they should have. But, and I understand that, I think, I'm married. Um, <laughs> it's a cyclical in our lives. But why not, why not engage with people who don't know Jesus? <laughs> you know, I hear so much, oh, my job is so wonderful, I've got Christians here, Christians there, Christians everywhere, then quit and go someplace else. You're here for one purpose, to plant the seeds of the gospel so that the kingdom will grow. It starts small, we see in verse 31, a grain of mustard seed. It was a common proverbial expression among the Jews of Jesus' day for something very small and insignificant. In fact, Jesus himself, twice in the gospels, uses the example of a mustard seed to illustrate weakness. Matthew 17, Luke 17. 
The illustration of the mustard seed clearly communicates in significance, weakness, and the early spiritual life, early stages of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying, which reflect how we begin, back to the infant conversation. Jesus himself came into the world as a vulnerable infant, didn't he? He started small. He was dependent on his mother, although he was the king at that moment. He had no armies, no followers, no wealth, nothing that would indicate his identity. Born in a stable as an infant. The apostles are another example. They were not leaders, trained speakers, experienced entrepreneurs. They were untrained, lowly, average guys who fished for a living. It always starts small. Paul said, not many of you were great. Not many of you were educated. Not many. No, why? Because God uses small things so that he gets the glory. Even in Jesus' end of earthly life, it was unimpressive from a human perspective, wasn't it? He was crucified between two criminals, had very few followers, wrote no books, had no possessions. Someone looking at his life would say, so what? And here we are. Millions and millions and millions will be in glory forever and ever because of one simple start. It grows big, though, verse 32. It becomes larger than any of the garden plants. It becomes massive, tree-like. What we're hearing from Jesus is that big things come in small packages. You think you're so insignificant? You think that your testimony, your, your relationship with your neighbor is meaningless? Think again. Many times, these novice converts, these People who come to faith are biblically illiterate, spiritually vulnerable, but over time they grow and become substantial, just like this bush. The church, once planted, grew fast and grew big. We see this in the book of Acts and throughout church history. The mustard seed was exploding over the planet. And with its explosion comes blessing. Look at verse 32. Starts small, gets big, and blesses people. It says... Even though it's small, gets big, puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. Blessing people. This is what the gospel does. This is, this is why God uses people like you and like me. To bless those around us. With the same blessing that we have received. Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, meaning, purpose, joy. Now, whether or not Jesus wanted his hearers here in Mark 4 to connect his comments in verse 32 about the birds of the air making nests in the shade of the mustard plant, whether or not he meant them to think about the nations of the world as do Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament when they talk about the birds in the shade of trees and plants, those two Old Testament prophets were referring to the nations. Whether or not Jesus was referring to that is uncertain, but... If so, we can see that the small and insignificant beginnings of the kingdom of God in the individual lives of believers ultimately have an impact on all nations. If you will just plant one seed, you may impact an entire nation coming to faith. 
How do you know that the person you don't share the gospel with raises children who become missionaries to a people group who've never heard the gospel? How are you here? Trace it back two generations. It is a miracle on every level. <laughs> Our simple faithfulness can impact, dramatically change the direction of entire people groups. In the book of Revelation, John ends the book by describing how the nations will come into the New Jerusalem, joyfully participating in the kingdom of God in the presence of Jesus Christ the King. How do they get there, pray tell? By you planting one seed. So how, how would these parables help those Christians in Rome during the first century living under the tyranny of Nero who received this book? Was there chaos in their lives? Yeah. Every day one of their friends, family members, neighbors were being dragged into the, the arena and eaten by lions. To me, that's chaos. <laughs> How would this news impact them? Do I have to say it? It's obvious how it would impact them. Talk about encouragement and hope. The kingdom of God to them seemed to be close to extinction. They were teetering on the edge of despair. How these stories of Jesus help communicate that Jesus solves chaos mattered to them. Although <clears throat> everything seemed hopeless, Mark reminded his first readers that Jesus promised that the seed of the kingdom of God always begins small and insignificant, but God will cause it to grow and be magnificent. Just plant the seed. and stand back, dependently waiting, <laughs> confidently trusting that God is gonna do what he said he's gonna do. Think about our Christian brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now. Chaos, a little bit. And they're, they're probably wondering how their lives fit with their understanding of the goodness of God and the kingdom of God. What in the world? Where does it say this in the book of Revelation? They may think all is lost unless they can't keep Mark's perspective in view. Then they'll know everything is as it should be. God is in charge. We just have to be faithful, no matter what our circumstances. These parables help in times like that. The first century Christians, the Ukrainian Christians, how about us here now? Our lives aren't nearly as chaotic, at least on that level, as theirs are or were. But how do we handle the disappointment, the personal chaos in our own life, at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our homes? Do we get thrown off balance with a little bit of wind and maybe some rain sprinkling? 
Have you heard Jesus' parables? Friends, God is the one who is at work. He produces. We wait. Right? We harvest. What started small, that little mustard seed, will one day grow. We just need to plant the seed. That's it. The kingdom of God is growing, friends. Even if we can't see it, even as imperceptible as it may be. So, let's believe Jesus on this one. Let's live our daily lives as if we believe this. Let's live our lives dependently waiting, confidently trusting, faithfully planting the seed of the gospel, wherever we are. This morning, we're going to serve you the Lord's Supper. And every time we serve the Lord's Supper to you on Sunday morning, there's a clear line between what we preach and the Lord's Supper. Can you identify it here this morning? Jesus says in, in Matthew and in Luke that this is the blood of the new covenant. Think about that. When we take the elements, it's a reflection of God's commitment to us. His, his commitment to our salvation, our well-being, his commitment to the furtherance of his kingdom. That's what's happening in the elements. Jesus says, when you take these things, you'll remember his death until he comes. You'll remember the point of his arrival on this planet. You'll remember the kingdom of God when you take these elements. So as we take the elements, the broken bread, the juice, remember what they represent. They represent a savior who has made promises who's given his life for us, that we might know salvation, that we might take that blessing and pass it on to those we love. This is what we experience every time we take the supper. Today, we just get to focus on that part of it. So thank the Lord if you are taking the, the elements because you know him, that he's had grace and mercy on your soul. And... and and do business with God as you're holding the elements, committing yourself anew to be a faithful farmer who will plant the seed and trust God, dependently wait, confidently trust. We usually um, spend time uh, recording a creed. I'm going to do that for you today, and you're simply going to say amen when it's appropriate. And it's appropriate pretty much on every line, but we've given you opportunity to hold it for just a few lines. So in your bulletin, you'll see the Nicene Creed. If you would stand with me and read that, you read your part of it, you'll read the bold word, amen, when appropriate. Um, but let's, let's do this as, as a way of affirming our trust and belief in our Savior. The Nicene Creed states, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. Amen. Amen. 
And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Amen. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again. According to the scriptures, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Amen. <clears throat> and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. Amen. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism representing the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. If you've embraced those things, if you believe those things, we want to welcome you to the Lord's table this morning. We're going to serve you up front. Uh, elders, if you're in the room, would you please come forward as I pray um, over these, these elements. I'm going to read for you the uh, words of institution from 1 Corinthians 11. Listen, and then I'll pray. For I receive from the Lord... What I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for um, your work of grace, for planning the events of human history before one day was lived, bringing us into the family of God through the work of the Holy Spirit, initiating our interest and changing our hearts to embrace the work of Christ on Calvary and the work of Christ in his perfect life. We praise you, give you all the glory for all the work of the kingdom of God in our own lives that have been accomplished. We're so thankful that we can be participants. I pray that you would take the things that we've heard this morning, apply them to our hearts, connect them to the elements we're about to receive. We thank you for the death of your son, spilling his blood, breaking his body so that we might know forgiveness of sin, that we might be saved. We pray these things in the name of our wonderful Savior. Amen.